that big, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about this haircut. So this haircut. Well, which one? Whichever one I guess you were I'll referencing start, last week. <laughs> I'll go in chronological order. So Elise and I have been in a little bit of a battle of the wills. Mm-hmm. Because she has cut my hair ever since I think she first cut it back in college. Because I remember screwing up the back line Mm -hmm. and being crooked. Mm -hmm. And then ever since then, I'm like, it's cool. Like, just practice on me because you cutting my hair is going to save us a lot of money. But my real reason is because I hate the social interaction that's involved with haircuts. I hate it. I've always hated it. Mm -hmm. You sit there and you awkwardly stare into your own reflection hoping to god that you don't make eye contact with either the person cutting your hair or somebody else in the you know i was gonna call it a restaurant in the store Mm -hmm. in the in the barber shop in the salon Mm -hmm. right um you know some of the most awkward conversations of my life have happened in a barber shop or a salon i don't Mm -hmm. really go to i I should find like a barber Mm -hmm. so anyway She's been doing that. And finally, like last year, early last year, she was like, I'm done. I was like, what do you mean you're done? Like, there's no warning. She's just like, I'm not cutting your hair. I was like, okay, well, I'm either not getting it cut or I'm going to cut it myself because mm-hmm. I'm not going to pay money to have somebody cut my hair. And so that kind of built and built and built. And finally, I gave in. I went and got my hair cut. So I went to a hair cuttery. It's right by my house. Mm-hmm. I go check in. And somehow they have me like in their system mm-hmm. from God knows how long ago. Right. And this lady um, calls me up. I sit down. And again, whenever I'm in these, I've talked about this before. When I'm out in public, I try and open my heart. I try and open my mind and just reach out to people and try not to judge and whatever. Mm-hmm. So this lady comes over. She starts cut my hair. And we start talking. And I found out that her son is about to go into college. I work at a university. I talked to her about it. And we talked about that. And things are going as good as a conversation where somebody's cutting your hair can go. Right. And then she leans in and just starts going on and on about Trump. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. how how he speaks his mind and Mm. how amazing he is and... He's what we need and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, number one, I'm upset because it's like, this is not appropriate. But number two, the assumption that she made, it made me feel like changing my whole get up. Like the assumption I'm, that you are also a Trump supporter. Exactly. Mm. That, oh, here's this kind of white man who, mm. and then what else? That's why I want to ask her, ma'am. What about me made you feel comfortable talking to me about Trump? And then I want to change that thing. <laughs> I I would go up to like getting a tattoo on my neck, not right. on my face. Uh-huh. But if I could get a visible tattoo on my neck that would make somebody look at me and be like, maybe he doesn't like Trump. Mm-hmm. Then I would I would do that. And it goes on. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, do I sit there and say, you know what? I don't agree. And then she's cutting right. my hair. Right. You know, do I just sit sit there and put up with it and have her feel like, yep, everyone loves my Trump rant. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a winner. Do I pay? Do I do it in tip? 
Like, do I say, you know what? Here's a dollar tip. I, I'll give you more, but don't talk politics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, is this a teachable moment? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So first, what would you say about that? I mean, is that just something where you just tip what you're going to tip? You just- yeah, I would have totally ignored it. I would have just just sat there and kept my mouth shut and tipped what I normally tip and got out of Dodge. And never go back. Yeah, I mean... I, oh, I, yeah, my plan I, right I, now I, is to never go back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I, I would probably avoid it if at all possible. The, the other problem is when I was in their system, I don't know what haircut I was getting. But she's like, oh, so number eight again on the mm-hmm. sides? Oh, wow. Exactly. Really detailed at the hair cuttery. She was like, so you got number eight? And I was like, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I felt like that was too big. Like she put the guard on and the guard was like a foot away right. from the I was like, that's not going to touch <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. And she cuts my hair with an eight. By, by the time we get to the end, I was about to say, you know what? Could you like take that in a little bit? Mm-hmm. Actually, let's not go eight. Let's mm-hmm. just on the sides. And the Trump thing had me mm-hmm. leaving there with a haircut that was atrocious. Maybe you just wear like a pin until the election is over. Like a like, like a pin. No. Yeah. And no, it just like it well, just exactly has like, what it just has like Trump's wig <laughs> with a line through it. <laughs> right. So not there needs pro to be somebody. some sort of universal like anti scarlet letter where everyone knows like I don't want to talk about Trump. Exactly. So that was that was number one. Sure. I get home. I'm like, well, thanks, Lisa. Oh, also, she was pretty clearly like saying, you know, anti-immigration kind Mm -hmm. of racist Mm -hmm. stuff where, you know, just very easy to demonize an entire group of people, ethnicity. Sure. So I get home like, at least thank you. Thank you. That was that was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And now I'm I'm even more dug in on my position that you cut my hair or I cut my hair or my hair doesn't get cut. Mm-hmm. And um, it goes on for months. All the way up to Christmas, my hair is disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I'm still refusing to get cut from hair cuttery. I go down home. Something is said down home. I'm, I'm visiting my parents in Miami. And... Um, Something is said, and my dad is like, oh, I know somebody. She's great. Let me set up an appointment with you. So she calls. She, he. Mm-hmm. He calls. He gets me an appointment. Not with the one they want, but this other lady who's like, oh, she's really good. I'm like, okay, where is it? Haircuttery. Mm-hmm. Haircut. He he called in. Do they even take Appoint like day ahead appointments. <laughs> Guess so. I, <laughs> I felt like I just want to be like, Dad, that like I you didn't need to do uh-huh. that. And so of course I go there and yeah, nobody's there. I'm like, Keith, for an appointment at two with, with Amy uh-huh. or whatever. And they're like, Oh yeah. And so Amy takes me back. Again, I'm trying to like, okay, let's by talking to people, I'm gonna make this a better experience. Than by shutting down. So I'm sitting in my chair and um, a little small talk. Then she does this thing where she rotates me. Like she goes to cut the side. And this time I say, get it short. I mm-hmm. want like a two on the sides, two or three on the sides. Mm-hmm. So she goes to do that. But instead of coming around to the side of me, she turns me. 
mm-hmm. like turns the chair to so the she left. She stands still and so moves she you. stands still and moves oh. me. So now I'm facing the the lady getting a haircut next to me, <laughs> and it's like my knees are practically touching her arm, and I have to sit there and stare at her and the other lady cutting the hair. And so I'm sitting there looking at both of them, and this lady's getting like st- like real stuff done to her uh-huh. hair. And they're having like a full conversation. I'm just awkwardly, I have nowhere else to look and I can't like move uh-huh. my head. I'm just really staring at them. And they're like slowly like looking over at me every now and again just to see like, I mean, is he going to put something in or yeah. is he like, and then she like turns me around when she does the other, other side. She didn't move at all. She pivoted me mm-hmm. every time she wanted to cut something fresh on my hair. So I was pivoted looking at the people next to me mm-hmm. like 15 times in the course of like, Two minutes to the point where I had to say something, right? So you should have just vomited everywhere. <laughs> Listen, I am I'm motion sick. And this spinning thing that you're doing, I mean, isn't that against like code? <laughs> One more turn and it's all coming out. It's all coming You've out. You've been warned. Have you seen the exorcist? Because that's what's about to happen in here. And so then the lady leaves who's getting her hair done. And it's these two ladies who cut the hair and they start having like a really personal conversation. That's clearly like a performance for me. It's like one of those things where it's like, guess how drunk I got again or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? And you're Mm -hmm. like, they wouldn't normally be talking like this, but I'm there and it's like, let's, uh, let's show them how crazy we can be. Right. And so you start getting more and more inappropriate and kind of like they're middle aged, not like maybe forties. Right. And they're starting to like include me on some stuff and it's making me feel really awkward. Mm-hmm. And right when I'm at the point where I don't think it can get any more awkward, a lady comes and sits down to get her hair cut. And she's like, I I'm getting my hair cut today. Thanks for seeing me. And the lady's like, no problem. She's like, I work on a ship. And they're like, Oh yeah. Where are you going? She's like, we're, we're leaving tomorrow, going to the Bahamas. I wanted to get my hair cut before I left. And they're like, Oh yeah. And she's like, yeah. Cause you know, they don't know how to cut my hair down there. Mm-hmm. And that started another racist mm-hmm. three, three for all, all three of them. Mm-hmm. They quote unquote, don't know hair down there. Like in mm-hmm. the Bahamas, like, you know, she'll go down there and, and people who don't have flowing straight hair like her going back. What is this? <laughs> we don't know what to do with this. You know? Uh-huh. And so she has to go to hair cuttery to get the right. proper cut that right. she needs. And then, of course, I think that's where the biggest flaw in that right. in that logic is. Is like I would understand if you're at like an upscale three hundred dollar haircut place, but you're at hair cuttery. Like you're I, paying twenty bucks for this. That's what I was about. Like that's what I wanted. <laughs> I I I had to bite my tongue back from saying like, oh, hair cuttery. With Amy here, who's so drunk, she can't see straight, uh-huh. you know? And then this other lady who's going through maybe, sorry, ma'am, you're going through a really rough time in your life, but I don't need to be hearing about that yeah. um, while you're cutting my hair. And so, again, same same kind of thing, worse than the first, because now there's more, and I've been pivoted. The last thing was, I in my pivoting, I got turned all the way around, and I was looking at the front again, and I saw that they offer a shampoo and cut mm-hmm. when do they shampoo your hair normally after they after they cut it i thought it was before 
Yeah, it's after. I thought it was before to get the stuff that you might have in your hair out. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to get out of there. And then... <laughs> right. That's the worst part about it. That's the worst is part you, about it. And you're like gobsmacked because like, wait a minute, I thought I avoided this part. Exactly. That's my biggest issue with getting a haircut is the shampooing part. I, I don't have as big of an issue with the social side of it. I'm I'm perfectly fine with, like I said, putting my head down and just... Uh, not interacting when somebody's talking about something that is either I'm just not interested in talking about or is maybe offensive. But I only get, I, I could talk for hours about haircuts. Yeah. I hate getting my haircut as well, but I hate it because, because of the, the first of all, the, the shampoo thing and because they never listen to what I tell them about how I want my haircut. And so I always walk out with this. I don't ever walk out with like a terrible haircut, but it right. is never what I ask them to actually do to my hair. Um, so w- when I lived in Norfolk, there was a barber I went to, which was fine. Before that, uh, your wife, Elise, would cut my hair as well. When I moved to Norfolk, there was a good barber in there I went to. Whenever I wanted my haircut. Now, I don't get my haircut that often to begin with. Ever since I moved back to Virginia Beach, I get my haircut like once every six months because I just don't, I don't like the experience, first of all. Right. It's, I, it, it's not the social, the social part of it doesn't bother me. I just don't like, I just don't like spending 30 minutes, taking 30 minutes out of my day to go do that. Mm-hmm. I would rather use that 30 minutes to do something else, right? Oh, yeah. So... The, but the thing that gets me is the shampoo, is the shampoo and wash, because it's like, that's something that kind of started once I stopped going to the barber, and the first time it happened to me, I was thinking, I, uh, I was thinking, first of all, you have to ask them to do this to you, right? right? That's what I'm thinking. Like, this is a service that you pay for. This is a service that you request. Mm-hmm. I do not ever want someone else to wash my hair. So I'm not requesting that service. Sure enough, the first time I go to get my hair cut after going to this barber or having uh, your wife do it, they cut my hair. I'm like, knowing that, I'm like, I'll, I'll, this is how much I hate taking time out of my day to get my hair cut. I'll use my lunch break to run across the supercuts across the street from my work get my hair cut, get back to work. And I can do that within 30 minutes. The first time I do it, I leave work. I go to get my hair cut. They cut my hair. I'm thinking, great, I'm done. And she goes, she goes, she doesn't ask me if I want my hair shampooed because if she asks me, I can just be like, oh, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. She says, let's go to the back and wash your hair. That's what she said. And saying. so then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, if I deny this service, I'm somehow acting out right i am abnormal at that point if i say no thanks she's this is obviously so accustomed su- such a custom to this place that if if i say no thanks <laughs> i'm imagining for years they're gonna be like remember that freak who didn't want his hair washed after well, he got his hair cut and you're in their system exactly now they're gonna make a note of it oh no shampoo guy right okay so then we in. go to the back and i'm like freaking out because i'm thinking like <laughs> I just don't want this lady to wash my hair. I don't know. It's like the only thing I can think of is like I'm a 30 something year old man. The last time another person washed my hair when I was probably like 
five years old and it was my mom and I was completely naked. <laughs> like this woman she should start not start taking be, your clothes off as you're walking back. One, right. <laughs> so then she's like, I sit down, I lay back and then, and then I get into this, this dilemma of like, well, when she's actually washing my hair, <laughs> do I, do I close my eyes or do I open yeah. my eyes? Because it's like, if I close my eyes, I don't want her to get the impression that I'm really super into getting my hair washed by her. But if I open my eyes, I feel and probably look like a complete psychopath who is laying back, mm-hmm. stiff-necked, with his eyes wide open. It's like uh, <laughs> kissing with your eyes open. You know, you just don't it's do like it. You can't win. And so from that point forward, that was really the moment. I was like, all right. The only time I'm getting my hair cut is like dire straits, right? Like, like I will get my hair cut more or less. At this point, my schedule goes haircut. I last as long as I can until my wife is, until Julia is like, every other word out of her mouth is go get your haircut. And then I go get my haircut again. Right. And every single time I've gotten shampooed because it's, because mm-hmm. I can't for I'm just such a dummy that I can't just be like no thanks <laughs> right I had to be like all right I guess this is part of the process <laughs> right and you feel like you're being led but you feel like a kid you do like they're leading you back right and, um <clears throat> so yeah I, I, and I could talk forever about this like I had to censor myself for time but there's a lot that I want to say and I you do you remember the Floby yeah it's the first time in decades that I've thought like no wonder somebody tried to give you know haircutting <laughs> yourself a shot yeah because this is so just night it's it's nightmare fuel yeah. going to get my hair cut and and i just want to know what is it about people who cut hair who look at me and say oh here's a fellow racist <laughs> who we can just be very open with our our racist views on other people around mm. I, I don't get i don't get what that is maybe i need to ask for a different haircut i i i think it's less of i think it's i think those i think people who hold, who hold those beliefs don't really care who they're talking to as long as you're not the person or the demographic that they're about to bash they'll talk to you about it i was hoping you'd say that that's that's my only saving grace. I think that's really the because if you remember our na- our neighbor did the same thing. Remember when we lived mm-hmm. at Smyrna? It was yeah. just like out of nowhere. It's like here's the N word, and she's like, "All right, <laughs> see you later." Did not expect that. <laughs> for a 30 second conversation about it uh that's probably how much you want to give it i wish yeah uh well i mean it's gotten i've only listened to a handful of things i haven't read anything i haven't even looked at like the rotten tomatoes just to get a general idea of what people think of it 
but um, I didn't like it at all. Not mm-hmm. to say it's a bad movie. I texted you about it. You said a lot of people were really um, down on it, or you you said that you felt that people were down on it because of their view of the director in a Ritu. right? So let's start by talking about him. Um, he directed Amoris Peros, mm-hmm. which I've seen. It's I think we it's safe to assume you've seen all the movies, all of his movies, right? I have not seen Beautiful. Oh, okay. So I've seen Amoris Peros, Twenty One Grams, Twenty One Grams, Babel, Babel, Beautiful, Beautiful. I didn't see Birdman. I didn't see, and then Revenant. Right. Um, and right around. I guess it wasn't around Babel, but like as Babel was coming out, he was kind of known as the, I want to say like more or less kind of like a, at least my view of him was like an emotional torture porn type of guy, right? Like up until Babel and Babel included, all of his movies were pretty much pure misery. Uh, At least that's how I found it. Right. Yeah, and no, no. I would, I with the Morris Peros, it was kind of, it was intriguing more for me because it, that type of thing had never really been done or hadn't been hit as hard as he was hitting it. Yeah, and he was doing this this kind of, um, you know, this this blended, I forget the word I'm looking for. The but storytelling. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, the three stories that intersect. Right. You know, three or four, there's multiple strands of stories that, that intersect. Right. That's That's kind of what he was... He was really about along with the miserablest side right. of it. So with the Morse Peros, it was intriguing. 21 Grams I liked, um, but it's also very dark. And by the time Babel is out and you watch Babel, for me, it was just kind of like, I've had enough. Right. You're like, hoping that's a trilogy. You, you, that you he's worn me down. Yeah. That he's done with. <laughs> so after Babel, I didn't see anything else he did. Um. So for me, he is not anybody that, uh, you know, now I go into movies not really caring who the director is, more or less, outside of, you know, probably Tarantino, Scorsese, Wes Anderson. There's a handful who, like, I will probably go in with expect- with expectations or, like, will see just because they're directing it. Mm-hmm. But Inaritu is definitely not one of those people. So how do you feel about him as a director and his filmography? Yeah, tw- twenty one grams. <clears throat> I saw in college and blew me away. I I loved it. Did we see that together? At I the think Polk? so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I loved it. Um, and there have been a, a few, <laughs> few jokes that I still reference from that. I mean, the 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 movie has had legs in my personal life. Maybe not for reasons that he intended, right. but uh, um, but yeah, I I loved twenty one grams. I honestly wasn't a huge fan of Amoros Peros. Uh-huh. I I could see what he was doing. I, I respected it. Babel, I actually really, really loved the Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett um, story. Yeah. The other stories didn't really work as well for me, but I remember liking it more than I thought. And then when Beautiful came out, I thought Beautiful had a great trailer, but then reading what people said about it, I was mm-hmm. like, I don't need to see that. I've seen that. In all of his other films, you know, right. it it seems like now he's saying, here's not three stories about miserable people. 
here's one big story about one right. big miserable person. And um and then when Birdman came around, again, people there was a super strong reaction against that. There's mm-hmm. a piece on the Dissolve by Scott Tobias, I think, mm-hmm. where he like famously just torched not Birdman, but yeah. Inaritu. He he went after Inaritu using the film as proof of his emptiness. Yeah. And uh and then the revenant. Now I see a virtuosic filmmaker. It kind of goes back to what we were saying about Hateful Eight. I see a director with real talent and vision who I think is reaching for profundity and has found the miserable, the easy place to go. So he keeps mining that territory as, you know, if I want to be profound, I need to go dark. I need to make it, you know, gritty and realist and, um, you know, focus my storytelling on real time. And those are elements that he, in his filmmaking, you see him trying to support what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So Birdman, in its kind of one-shot fakery take, I think he's not just doing that to say, watch, look what I can do, Mm -hmm. but he's trying to tie that in thematically to watching this man go through this pressure cooker, right? And if we think that it's all in real time, it enhances that. But I don't think that he's worried that it does make him seem like he's doing more than, you know, he really is. Mm-hmm. That he's like, look how amazing I am, you know? Yeah. It's it's accomplishing those two things. And I think people are calling him out because he seems like a man who isn't just saying the the story needs me to do this, but he's saying I need to do this as a director mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it fit what the story needs. Right. And so his his movies come off a little bit. You feel that reaching. It's like when an actor, a not very good actor, is trying to make, like trying to carry across a scene. You can see them like trying. And that effort in acting is really embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like, you know, I've been to some theater in my time where it's like, wow, yikes. I can't even, I, I, I just want to crawl out of my skin and leave, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the equivalent of people, especially you watch a lot of film, that's the reaction they feel like they have to enter into because they see so many films that they, they see it. They're like, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Did you need to do a 15-minute tracking scene to open up your film? Like just throw in a few cuts and let it and drop that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But for other people, I don't think it stands out that that harshly. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know that that criticism carries weight beyond that person or that group of people. But maybe you could refute me on that by maybe not liking the Revenant's opening battle sequence that's all in one shot. And I don't know how you felt about that. Well... Because I wanted to reference Birdman because I think it's more apparent in Birdman, but you haven't seen it. Right. So I guess we, we can just try and use The Revenant. I mean, I, I feel like with, with Birdman, the idea is that for me, I now I haven't not seen Birdman, but I the concept that I understand is that the entire movie is, is shot as it is one take, correct? Even it's shot it's, to it's, make it appear. It's obviously not, right? Mm-hmm. But... 
it's done in, in such a way because you're following more or less kind of like a unstable person. And so I feel like the purpose of that is not just, Hey, look what I can do. Look at how fancy of an editor I am or a, you know, a composer of screen composer, mm-hmm. but it's also playing into the mindset of this character. And my problem with it in the Revenant and there are a lot of long one take shots in the movie is that I don't feel like they have any purpose in the Revenant other than to be like, look at what I'm doing. Uh, and the, the one that I have the most exposure to the whole single take hysteria that people love <laughs> is from the first season of true detective. Right. And for me, that one take is so awesome because I didn't notice it the first time I was watching. But what I did notice was the entire time I'm watching this six or seven minute sequence, I am feeling an increasingly ramped up stress. Like I am getting more and more tense throughout this scene. And afterwards, I realize it's because they never cut away from any of the action. And you're never given any relief with the editing. You know what I mean? It's like it starts here and by the end of it, you're just like, you're just like exhales like, holy cow. And and so f- there, yes, it is then impressive technically mm-hmm. because it's this single shot, but it also serves a purpose within the episode. Mm-hmm. It's not just, and I'm sure he's got a purpose for doing it in Revenant. I don't see it. It was not a- apparent to me in the movie. Um also, the problem with that is you are compromising some level of execution because if you have a five minute long sequence that is perfect, except for maybe one guy flubbing something in the background or even in the foreground, you're not going to throw out that five minute sequence. Mm-hmm. You're going to find some way to kind of cover that up. Mm-hmm. And in the battle sequence, it's it's to me it's apparent because and, and it, it's the same thing in the true detective sequence going back and watching that sequence when Matthew McConaughey is punching people or fighting people it looks ridiculous it looks terrible <laughs> yeah when you're looking for right, it right right but when you're when you first watch it and you're when you're in the moment you sort of don't notice that because you're on a heightened level of sort of uh, anxiety with the character or whatever but watching it as like the opening five minutes of the movie, all I can see are people just kind of like throwing their shoulder into somebody else. You know what I mean? Instead of like actually punching them or, you know, like a well-edited punch. You know, So I pick up on a lot, a lot of that stuff that bothered me. I didn't think it was a huge deal. What bothered me more about the camera work uh, was the actual camera work was the the camera to me felt really floaty mm-hmm. and it felt very kind of uh listless it just didn't feel like it had a lot of purpose mm-hmm. and it felt more like somebody running around on like a 90s MTV sound stage <laughs> and like shoving the camera in somebody's face and then like swinging it somewhere else and be like well now look at this then it did like someone who's trying to uh convey a feeling of the scene or whatever. And I was really bothered by how much 
he puts the camera right in somebody's face and then uh, gets fogged up with their breath. I understand that's a practicality of where they're shooting and how he's filming it, but I just I, I think thought he wants that was that because, stupid. Well, because there are times when blood splatters on the camera as well. In the in but the, you're also like. And he does this at the very end of the movie, but it's right. a way of breaking the fourth wall. Well, I think he wants to. But see, that totally kills the mood okay, of the movie. Exactly. I think this is this is the conversation. Like, like I'm supposed to be watching Leonardo DiCaprio struggle to stay alive, mm-hmm. and the next second I see him breathing all over a camera. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, all right. Well, th- see, th- this is the whole question about Inaritu, right? Is... How much of this is kind of, how much of this does he know and understand from an outside perspective of like, hey, I know I'm trying to do something here and I need to make sure that I balance that with purpose or with story or with some kind of self-awareness, you know, some kind of wink, especially in Birdman to to not be so self-serious about it, you know, like. Right. We are we are making art here, and, and art means sacrifice and blood and all this stuff. And I think this is the conversation that that people are having when they watch his films. The film becomes secondary, and part of this is his fault because everything that he's doing is trying to be so virtuosic, <clears throat> and it points to itself too much, mm-hmm. and he either doesn't have the story to back it up, or. He's, his arrogance is too much that it shows through. You can look at Lubetsky, his work as well with other directors, mm-hmm. or you look at other directors' work that takes on elements of that you see in The Revenant. Number one, Quran, right? You have both in Children of Men and in Gravity, which Gravity is a pursuit that somehow combines Birdman with Revenant. Mm-hmm. It is... It is filmed almost as one long take, right? Mm. There's scenes of her floating off into space and the camera rotating around her as she spins and going into her helmet, right? Getting into her face and then giving you her perspective. Like, that is technically virtuosic. That's showy. Let me take you inside this helmet. Mm -hmm. Yet it comes off as something that's truly inspiring to see and to watch and not like... Oh, I'm supposed to be watching this actor try and survive, and now I can see the the steam on this lens, right? Mm-hmm. And then in Children of Men, you have that long single take in the car where they're driving and they're attacked. Do you remember that? And yeah. the camera's on the roof, and you behind the scenes, people had to like go down in their seat and then pop back up, and people are like constantly rotating as the camera's spinning around. Um, totally showy, but fits fit the story so well Mm -hmm. and so you leave that scene going wow i didn't breathe hardly through that that was perfectly executed and choreographed but then you get to inaritu and you're right in the opening battle i remember one guy like seemingly to have shoved somebody on his uh, bayonet and like just running (laughs) Like running across the camera, but it's clearly like the guys just kind of backpedaling and they're just like, they're just, they're like running and it, and right. it felt like a dance number. Like I yeah. thought he'd like shove them off and then start like dancing with his gun, you know? And, and there are elements of that, but why is that more noticeable in that 
than in those other movies. Or, you know, Lubetsky's work with Terrence Malick. And Terrence Malick talked about a listless camera and, and even talked about a listless film, right? A lot of his films are like, where, why am I in a swamp now listening to these people? But it, but it carries more weight than it does with Inaritu. And I think that's what people are struggling with. Well, I think some of it has to do with the cinematography itself, which I don't want to get sidetracked on that right away because I do have another point I want to make. But, and maybe we had a bad showing. I had a bad projection. Yeah. The movie didn't look that great to me. I know there's a lot of talk about how it was all naturally lit, which is another one of those sort of like, are you doing this for a purpose or mm-hmm. are you doing it because you can do it? Or are you doing it to be like, are you doing it so before the Oscars you can say, right. by the way, that's all natural light. But it did not look um, great to me. And part, and that's kind of a depressing thing to say because like, yeah, this is the world we live in. The hyper stylized or saturated coloring of a Terrence Malick movie. It may look beautiful and it may convey a meaning on its own it's not how the world actually looks but at the same time if that if oversaturating the colors gives you that meaning like you Go know for there is definitely something to watching a, Ter- a Terrence Malick movie of just these uh, you know nature shots that all of a sudden you're if not if it's not conveying a specific message to you it's making you think um, so I didn't really care that much for the way it looked period. I acknowledge that it's a huge accomplishment to film something in all natural light, I guess. I mean, it sounds it from the reports. It sounds like it was a huge pain in the ass for everyone to do, mm-hmm. but whatever. Um, for me, the reason that stuff doesn't work in this movie and I can't speak to the other movies. I mean, it's been. Uh, at least a decade since I've watched a Morris Peros or uh, uh, 21 Grams, whenever that movie came out. Mm-hmm. For this movie, it doesn't work because, and it, and it ties in also with that, with the up close, steamy camera shots. As soon as I see that breath fog up the camera lens, I immediately start thinking about either Inaritu or whoever the cameraman is laying on the ground like I imagine standing 10 feet away freezing my ass off with my arms crossed and seeing Inaritu laying on the ground with a camera on his shoulder and Leonardo laying not even two feet away from that camera just going you know what I mean and it's like I completely when that when I say that that breaks the fourth wall for me it breaks everything and part of that is because this movie to me felt like exactly like you said with the lighting thing. It felt like Oscar bait. This is I'm not interested in the message at all. If there is a message, which is something I wanted to ask yeah, you about. Yeah, we can touch on that. But it is the, the the this this movie getting nominated for so many awards and for so much talk about Leo winning an Oscar for it makes perfect sense to me because this is exactly what a Hollywood actor thinks acting is. You know what I'm saying? This is exactly what the Hollywood machine more or less thinks acting is. 
thinks it's someone going out into Canada in sub-freezing weather and throwing dirt on themselves and crawling through the ground and, oh, look at how much pain we're putting ourselves through. And, oh, he eats a real bison heart and oh, blah, blah, blah. And it's Liver. just like, yeah, it's just as like, you know what? At the end of the day, all of these people go back to a hotel room that probably costs more than I make in a week. They take a hot shower. They eat a hot meal. They are not struggling in any sense of the word whatsoever. They are not experiencing it. Leonardo DiCaprio got, got hurt on the job. Boo freaking who? <laughs> because he's also making tens of millions of dollars. Like, like the average person, Tarantino said something that really stuck with me. And in, in that Hollywood Reporter interview I watched mm-hmm. on YouTube, he's at the table of directors. He said that movies are the layman's art. They are the art for the average person. And uh, Tom Hooper was one of the directors at that table. He knew had no idea what that probably like that never even crossed his mind. But everyone else was just kind of like seemed a little taken aback by it. But to me, I, you know, that is something that I agree with 100%. Mm -hmm. And so all of this stuff, all of the Revenant that the Revenant presents, it it just comes off as pure Oscar bait. And it just looks completely, it just felt completely empty to me. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's, that's a very nihilistic kind of (laughs) soapbox to stand. And, and that's, that's one way of, of approaching this I think I I tried to write a little thing my my reaction on Letterboxd after I watched this and my take was basically I think everyone needs to calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Inner Ritu needs to needs to lighten up a bit. Yeah, but I think the people. Oh no! Did you not see the scene where they're like catching snowflakes yes. on their tongue? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I would rather not have Inner Ritu <laughs> lighten up. <laughs> And then, and then I think that some people watching and reviewing his his films, they need to lighten up as well. Like there is a there's an aspect to what you're saying that's absolutely true, and then the, then there's the other side of the coin that is like, I'm watching a movie, but I am watching people trying to tell a story mm-hmm. and trying to tell it honestly in the elements and trying to do something a little more than what has been done before out in the wild with a revenge film. I think that's where I differ is, are they doing it honestly? Uh, Or are they just, is it just a huge circle jerk where they're patting each other on the back and being like, look at where we're creating. He's look at how hard he's struggling. Like you guys need to like take yourselves down a peg. Well, yeah, but but I'm also making a movie, right? I, I choose to be agnostic about that. I don't know how they're on set. By what Inaritu has said, he probably is slapping himself on the back mm-hmm. more than anything else. I don't, I don't think that he thinks of other people other than Lubetsky, you know, cinematographer, mm-hmm. and maybe the star they works with. I think mainly he's very proud of what he does because he did it. But I don't know that, right? I don't know that. Mm-hmm. I could say, you know, if if there was somebody who we didn't know who made this film, then you could buy into the narrative of, oh, here's a guy just trying to be like, here's natural light. Let me try and put you in this place a little better mm. than what other films have done. 
And if you give him the benefit of the doubt, I think this movie does have its charms. And I think this movie is trying to do something. And there are things being done that I don't see how, if you just came to it, irregardless of all that outside stuff or who made it, that you don't walk away from that being like, well, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. That was that was an interesting experiment that sometimes the choreography showed through. Did the point of the movie really come across as strongly as Inaritu probably felt it in when, mm-hmm. when he was writing and making it? No, but it's there. There's something there that you can see him working towards and mm-hmm. trying to wrestle with. Uh, and so, yeah, I walked away being like, that was really good film like i enjoyed it so what did you find interesting because if i was by myself i saw this movie with my wife if i was by myself i would have walked out of the movie and that's not because i thought it was bad it's just because i was completely bored right and i found nothing about it interesting and i knew exactly where it was going and what message it was trying to deliver and i just can I didn't want to spend another hour in the theater watching the movie. Can I put out the caveat that your walkout meter is very low? Sure. It's not saying much. I mean, that's but <laughs> I okay, but I I haven't I walked out of I walked out of the only other movie I can remember that I walked out of was Tropic Thunder. And again, it wasn't because I thought this movie's terrible. It just was like I got like maybe like forty minutes into it, and I realized you know what, this is not my sense of humor. And you so, never ask your money back, do you? That's no, one thing I, I never leave. understood. It, no, I just leave. The last one, just to answer the question that wasn't asked to me, Southland Tales was the last one Elise yeah. and I walked out of. Um, okay, so uh, getting back to, yeah, to the film. Um, so something that I read or heard that I, that I do like, I think this is an encapsulation of what we're talking about. In that opening fight sequence, you have a moment when Inaritu follows some people fighting until they die. You you follow and then you follow the person who killed them. Mm-hmm. So you follow this uh, uh, American fighter until Native American comes and kills him. Then you follow him until somebody kills him. Then you track this other guy. And what this person said was, for them in the moment, it made them think about all those other people in terms of their films like what if this shot had continued with them and they didn't die or what if the shot coming from where we picked them up at with that was a continuation of a shot mm-hmm. so for them they got something out of why do this in one take because you can follow these different people and comment visually on each of these people has their own story each of them is a character in their own film. And whether you got anything out of that, whether I did, this person did. For, for, for them, that, stu- that stood out. Inaritu may or may not have any intention of that getting through. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the fundamental question. For a filmmaker that has clear vision and purpose that you can understand in some that you've talked about, like Wes Anderson, Tarantino, we know, like we talked about Tarantino is having a blast Mm -hmm. making the hateful eight. Mm -hmm. Right. So the profundity could be there, but mainly he's out there to like poke you a bit and Mm -hmm. like, you know, get under your skin and prod you a bit for Inuritu. I think people are saying like, 
he's he's wanting you to like feel the weight of humanity in all of his films and i reject that mm-hmm. you know um so i don't think that he is conveying those directorial flourishes with enough purpose that people know what to do with it mm-hmm. that even if somebody gets something out of it did that stand out to you that that's what it meant by doing one long take and following these different people no nothing no. stood out to nothing stood out to me in this movie at all okay yeah period. exactly and it didn't stand out to me but but it stood out to them right and so right. i think that's the problem a good director doesn't leave a lot of question as to what they're doing, even if something is ambiguous. Like, did you see a serious man by the Cone brothers? Yes. That ending scene, what does it mean? I don't know, but it feels like it means a lot because mm-hmm. it's coming from the Cone brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, what does Barton Fink mean as a whole movie? Mm-hmm. I can think of about a thousand things that it could mean, but it's fascinating because it comes from them, right? In Aritu, why does he do these things? Who cares? That's, you know what I mean? Like, that's the response. And sure. So I, yeah, so I think that's the indictment of him as a, as a director. Well, I mean, you're with the, at a certain level of film watching, you're either on board with the director or you're not. And so uh, you could make the argument that if this was a Tarantino movie, I would be more disposed to I would be right I would be more lenient mm-hmm. possibly because I would be looking for you know I would be looking for his touches more or less I would be trying to figure out what he's saying here and there but oh, because in I'm, the in the revenant they say the n word so that is they? a Tarantino oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the Tarantino touch. But because I'm just agnostic towards Inarito I I'm more or less just left with what is my gut reaction to this and like mm-hmm. I said because when you're doing a continuous shot, you are sacrificing a certain level of choreography when it comes to at least fight scenes. To me, it feels less like um, a easier to follow a journey through a battlefield where you're sort of following this circle of life path. Not circle of life. But you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I know what you're like, saying. Yeah. Circle of death. Instead... It feels like you're just running through like like a recreationist gathering on a hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's like, all right, I understand what these guys are doing, but ultimately, uh, like, they're a bunch of guys in you know Confederate soldier uniforms from uh, the thrift store that they made themselves or whatever. This is like it ends up feeling a little cheap to me. Okay, so I guess to wrap up. What? Oh, I still have a lot to talk about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, acting slash casting. You know, like I said, there's a lot of talk for uh, DiCaprio. DiCaprio. How do you feel about that? I thought he, I thought he was very strong in the movie. I'm really? fine. Yeah. I didn't care for. I just I thought the I thought the casting in general was strange. I felt like it's a it's a strange role for Leonardo. I and this is something I tried to convey to my wife, and mm-hmm. it made no sense to her. He does not have the right voice to play that role. His <laughs> voice is too high pitched. It does not. It's not gruff enough. Uh-huh. It's not deep enough. Tom Hardy should have been in the Leonardo DiCaprio role. Somebody else should have been in the Tom Hardy role. And the dork from uh, Ex Machina s- stuck out to okay. me so bad. 
he doesn't fit either because <laughs> okay. he's too much of a like like no one is going to be no soldier is going to be led by this toothpick and have any sort of confidence in their unit at all. Okay, this this gets to uh, Elise and I had a conversation about this as well. I really liked him in this film. One thing that I really liked as well is I like the fact that in the middle of all this miserableism that Inaritu fought the urge to turn this into a classic mutiny kind of situation that it's very easy to go back in time and just imagine everybody living in the early 1800s as, you know, fighting with the elements and fighting with each other and just kind of being uncivilized, mm-hmm. right? But in The Revenant, you have one mutinous character in, in Tom Hardy and you have everybody else who's just on board with like the code of saving this man's life right of you know honoring their contracts and their duties and you have Domhnall Gleeson who is a toothpick but he represents a position that the men largely respect due to their place and i really really like that well and hard is not mutinous because he's not a soldier he's a contractor he's a contract no he's I'm a using, trapper yeah i'm using mutiny just in the sense of like let's turn against the authority figure you yeah, know so he's kind of a lone wolf yeah yeah but he can't get other people on his side to get him yeah. against glass and uh and it's not and i like that i like the fact that this isn't just here's something miserable happens to glass and here's a bunch of miserable people around him you actually have good people around him it's just tom hardy and i I really really like that so well then i'm gonna take that as a lead-in to talk about the ending okay so they have all these good soldiers around him and yet two people go out to get hardy back yeah why because at that point we shifted into the the thematic territory for the ending more than the it's it's the same thing kind of like with Birdman. There's a point with the ending mm. that you depart from reality and it becomes more about the theme of what he's trying to do than it is about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I think he does that again with this. So there's a small pretense to, look, you guys are under contract. I can't make you go out with me to do this because this is, you're not soldiers, you know? and you represent a company and the main guy from the company's coming to the fort, you know? So there's an element where I think you could try to explain it away with, you know, he'd have to pay them. This is now more of a principal thing for him than it is company business, but he's committed to writing this wrong. But I would say, I wouldn't even bother making that point. I would say thematically. No, I don't think that point really holds yeah, any water. Yeah, I would say, I would say we, we've shifted into thematic territory. It didn't bother me. All right. And 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 uh, speaking of themes, so he so after uh, uh, Glass uh, shoots Hardy, chokes him, stabs him <laughs> multiple times with a knife, Chops his fingers uh, off. Chops his fingers off. He then says, I'm going to let God decide your fate. Uh-huh. 
and dumps him in a river where two feet later he's picked up and scalped by Indians. <laughs> it's like, like what is the, that is a total whiff on the, like, like what is that supposed to be portraying? What is the message of that? Like, I understand what the message is, but it doesn't, like, I understand what the message is, but the actions don't convey any of that. You've just shown a man literally attack someone to within an inch of it, to where, to where if he would have just walked away, Hardy would have just died on his own. He's, he basically would have been dead, mm-hmm. and, but he's justifying it by saying, your fate's in God's hands? Like, like, no, no, his fate ended with you. You didn't give anything to God right there. You had already <laughs> taken his fate. But it, like, does that not, did that not, I mean, does that mean anything? To, does that, so, did that work for you? Two, two quick things. Number one, again, he, the important thing is that he was not the one to execute him. But he was. You you can say there's something to be said about him going on a revenge mission, getting to the point where he was kind of protecting him. It was self-defense a little bit, right? So you could say that on this revenge <laughs> no, mission. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Hardy say, was walking away. Yeah, you could say that uh, That the important thing is that the he did not do the death blow. That, that Even if it's a moment of redemption at the end that he got it. He got, he got, so I could shoot somebody in the chest and because they don't die immediately, that means I didn't kill them. I could shoot somebody in the chest and say, I'm going to let God take care of you now. I'm out of here. Yeah. You you could go after somebody who's done you great wrong, beat them up. And then right when you're about to punch them out into total unconsciousness after (laughs) smashing their nose, you go, you know what? It's not. It's not worth it. And okay. I'm just gonna. I'm. I'm gonna walk away. I'm gonna try to atone for what I've done so far. I. Th- this is the second thing that I was gonna say. That's the problem that I think people are again wrestling with when in Ritu, is that he is reaching for this profound statement, but he does not have enough grasp of it himself in any profound way to make it work. Right. That's the problem. And so it becomes an embarrassing show at the end of redemption from a guy who the, I don't know what the equivalent of for him, but he's a hyper intellectual um, meathead Mm -hmm. is, I think he's a combination of those two things. It's like Michael Bay read a bunch of books, you know, and that's what you get. You get in a Ritu. And so it's this bombast with, now I'm going to say something. And it comes off as like, huh? Okay, buddy. I'm sure by then he's off on his cloud of thematic truth. And don't, didn't you see the real light breaking through the tree at the end and blah, 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 whatever. Or, or just tying it in with the redemption that he, you know, that's the Native Americans of the woman that he freed while she was being raped. Mm-hmm. Do you need that scene? And you know, like you don't need that scene of him, of this woman being raped, and then he lets mm-hmm. her go, only to tie in it. For him, he's tying together this big narrative that all means something. And I think people are calling him out. And Scott Tobias Rowe and Birdman, basically, the emperor has no clothes. This is a guy who can spin a good visual yarn, 
but he can't tell a story worth crap mm-hmm. because he's too wrapped up in himself and what he's saying and in and in art, right? With a capital ART and exclamation points after mm-hmm. after it. For me, I could lighten up a bit and say, yeah, it's a it's a visually dynamic meathead who's trying to tell a story of redemption and this is what he came up with. Parts of it don't work, but I'm not going to dismiss the whole work and the filmmaker himself because he's a little heavy-handed in his metaphors and his endings especially. Mm-hmm. I'll also say it was it was really long. I mean, it's it's, this, it's the same length as The Hateful Eight and it felt twice as long for me. Yeah, I mean, it was long. I I can't say that it felt I didn't recognize it. Although when we saw it there's a box in the middle of the screen that was I think it was the wall behind their projecting. It was mm-hmm. discolored. Mm-hmm. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> so, everything I'm saying is filtered through this huge box in the middle of the screen that discolored the whole image. Yeah. The whole like third middle part and there was a a moment in this movie where i genuinely thought and i leaned over to julia in the theater and i said i think we're going to watch leonardo dicaprio crawl on the ground for the next two hours he was crawling around for so long (laughs) like if this guy's going to walk again let him crawl for five to ten minutes and then put him on his gosh darn feet and let him walk around i don't want to watch this guy who i just watched get carried for 30 minutes now crawl on the ground for 30 minutes like get on with it that's, that killed me it's just yeah, like this yeah, is too a, long that, too that, long yeah, that, that, that's a you problem i wonder if inaritu realized dicaprio was his guy when he watched wolf of wall street that's exactly the, uh, what i thought of when he's on quaaludes, <laughs> quaaludes. He saw him crawling on quaaludes and he said, what if that we, Ferrari was a horse? We found our crawler. What if that car was a, was a horse? And what if he ate a uh, bison liver in, on his way to that yeah. horse? So wrapping up Revenant, I want to know what for you is the overall, you wouldn't say the movie's transcendent. No. I've heard it said from I don't know who. But for you, what is the message? What did you take away from it? Is there any sort of greater meaning that registered with you or you took away from the the the, the, the point that I or the, the moment that I drew out of it was the church scene where he's having his visions. I largely saw as is that when his boy shows up. Again? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's where I think the, the, the character takes a pivot. I saw. I'm going to sound super pretentious, but you mm-hmm. asked. Sure. And we have not prepped this, so I don't know how this sounds. Uh-huh. I'm about to get very inneritu okay. on on this podcast. So what I saw was uh, a church building uh-huh. that had been whittled down to the bare essentials that it needed, right? To yeah. still be considered a church which is why you had that bell that was constantly going, uh-huh. you know? So that's one thing that you see. The bell's constantly ringing. The walls have largely been gutted, but <clears throat> you do see an image of, of Jesus and a cross, right? There's like a crucifix, mm-hmm. I think, that's that's at the front. And then you have like the, the apostles kind of on different walls 
that have been painted there. So what I took that to mean and is that what the film is doing is it's whittling a man down to the bare essentials that you need in order to kind of get through and survive this life. Or if you want to take a spiritual meaning that if you gut religion down to its core essentials, what, what do you need? You know, and what you need in the end of this is just a humbling of yourself in this universe. So for glass, it was understanding that he is not the being who's able to execute final justice or expect justice in this world mm-hmm. that he has to turn that over. Right. right. And it happens at, at the very most he can cut off three fingers at the very <laughs> most he can cut off three fingers and he could kill this person, but right. it wouldn't be justice. Right. right? It sure. would not be justice. Mm-hmm. And, and what can happen in the church is that reconciliation that, that he can, he can have some peace if he whittles himself down, if he gets rid of all the excess Mm-hmm. And and that's what I kind of saw. So you have a human construct of a church that has been built that's just getting battered by nature, or you could say by God. And then you have a building that is still functional. You can still have reconciliation happen there. You can still have God being a presence there, but it but it's not going to look good. It's not going to look perfect. It's going to look kind of gutted and and destroyed a bit, but it's still going to be functional. And so that's that was thematically what I thought the connection was between his visions, <clears throat> his progression as a character, and the and the ending. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did you think of the very final shot where he looks straight into the camera? Again, you know, I've seen that work in other movies. I've. I've seen it happen in a movie where and then I like he breathes over the credits. <laughs> right. So I I've I've had that happen. And does he live or die? Sorry, last okay. option. So yeah, I've had that happen in a movie where it literally like took my breath away. Where there's a character that like turned and looked and I was like, like it freaked <laughs> me out. And it was uh-huh. really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, this was not one of those. And again, I think it's because of the person who's doing it that he can't he's not investing the story with the me he doesn't know when to cut back as a director to emphasize what really needs to be emphasized in terms of the story um and he's getting wrapped up in the in the realness of it you know that you know when leo comes out of the ground and he's like spitting and he's mm-hmm. trying to get this ground off he's a, acting yeah there's a point where he's he's acting he's acting mm-hmm. and you and you're just like okay whether i see him do that or i see him covered in dirt 30 feet away i understand what happened i don't need to see the 30 feet crawl mm-hmm. um so the ending did not work but again i saw what Inaritu's trying to do mm-hmm. and again i just feel like it's a it's a meathead uh intellectual you know who's kind of working with a with a meat cleaver mm-hmm. you know when he, he really needs to get a finer tool in there mm-hmm. um the breathing over the end of the credits. Yeah. You know, he's trying to now say like, here we are, we are in this world too. You know, what are, how are we going to respond to the pressures around us or what's important to get us through or all that stuff. Um, he, he lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here's a character starting off who is in, in 
investing in his, or he's in, he's talking to his son about fighting for every breath that you never give up in this world. Um, trying to get his son through, was he just ill or was he actually, no, he had the fire. He, mm-hmm. he was burned trying to get his son through that. And then he does it again by surviving the bear attack. I don't see him as being all about survival to then at the very end, what just let himself freeze. Like it doesn't fit with the character. He gets back to civilization. And I think he moves on with a right understanding of himself in this world to get over the slaughter of his wife and, and child. Mm-hmm. What about you? I think he's dead. I think he dies. Why? Because uh, it's an Inaritu movie, first of all. And I think he dies because he should not be alive to begin with, right? He should have been dead after the bear attack. What do you think of He's, the bear attack really quick? We didn't even talk about was, that. It was great. It was okay. cool. Um, it was neat. He, he, after that and then being stabbed through the hand with a rusty blade and being told by the uh, native that his body is rotten... There's just no way he lives long enough to get back to wherever he's going. I just think he's dead. I don't think it's a matter of him laying down and giving up. He also says a little bit earlier when he's talking to uh, the military guy, whoever, whatever his name is, um, uh, the sex pervert from Ex Machina, <laughs> that um, he's not afraid to die anymore. So that, to me, is sort of foreshadowing of, of him dying. Um, the last thing I want to say about it is is I heard this on one of the podcasts you recommended for me to listen to, is somebody compared Leonardo DiCaprio's character in this movie. They called him Wiley Coyote, which I thought yes. was hilarious and when, when absolutely he, perfect. When he rode off the cliff right and the next time you see of him he's just completely face down <laughs> in the snow he's not moving <laughs> i that was one scene where i did feel like for a moment i was like please just have him be in the tree right i, I don't that's care. what i was thinking too yeah. he's just in the tree yeah i was like i don't care if you could grab onto a tree right and stay up there but it would be better if he's just somehow like got caught up in the tree and, and hurt than if he Fell and his face down. It basically just splatted in the snow. Splatted on the snow. All you need is the little puff of smoke to come up, or puff of snow to come up after he falls off the cliff. The the only other thing I want to say is, also, did the geography of this movie stand out to you at all? The movement from places of snow to mountains to valleys to places of, like, prairies? It stood out to me where I, I, I ended up liking it but he like fell in the water at a place where there's a bunch of mountains mm-hmm. and then gets out of the water at like a prairie and mm-hmm. i want to be like where are the mountains how I far mean, did he float yeah the only thing i can say about it is it left me with no idea or even estimation of how much distance he traveled and that is not even something that i've thought about until someone else brought it up yeah. on a podcast that i listened to in, I, in I just, real life
instead of because we're already at an hour and 10 minutes I think instead of talking about oxen free uh, you can we'll take another week and you can finish it because I have I w at least want to take my time talking about it I okay. don't want to rush through it uh, so next week we'll talk about oxen free I also finished Mr. Robot which we can talk about a little bit if yeah, you want to I'm on episode 4 Oh really? Mm -hmm. So what are you general impressions? Are you into it? Not I've into been it? I've been up and down on episodes. There there were, I think it's been like a trade off. I've loved an episode. There's one that I remember, like what was that, and then loved again. So it's been kind of. Up well, and down. I'll say this. I think there's eight episodes, right? I don't know. We watched the first four over the course of a week and a half, maybe. Like we watched the first one. And then the second one a few days later. But we watched the last four in one sitting. Oh, so, so it picks up? It picked up for us, uh, uh, you know, without getting into it. I like I liked the show. I, it was, I thought it was good. I'll try to, to give it a watch. Yeah. Um, can, can I, well, maybe I'll make an off-air suggestion too. Go ahead. B based on our discussion of Inaritu and directors and long takes, have you heard of Victoria? Victoria is a film that's all one take and it's like two hours long mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's shown up on some top 10 lists. I'm really interested in it. They did it. They filmed it one time through three times and they couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. And the guy was about to just like, I'm just going to make a normal movie. And they did it one last time and they, they made it. So it's mm -hmm. truly uncut. And I'm very interested to see what a truly one take movie looks like. And if we think it can pull off, it's if the story is there for the directorial right. flourish. All right. So next week we'll talk about Oxen Free. We'll talk about some other things. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to see The Witch this weekend. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about that. Uh, real quick on Oxen Free, would you recommend somebody playing it? Yeah. Now, with that being said, it's a $20 game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, for for me, because because I've heard some people, and, and we'll get into it a little bit. There, there are a few things that I that that I want to critique, mm -hmm. but the art style is, I think, gorgeous. Yeah. I, I'll say it's always hard to do a value judgment on a game because you know money means different things to different people. But I would say if you've got twenty dollars, that you're just like. Yeah, I can spend this on a game. I would pick it up. But if you've got $20 that you could spend better elsewhere, I would probably spend it better elsewhere. Okay. Uh, so that so you've been listening to uh, Everything is Interesting. I'm Justin Blizzard. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Blizzard with nine Zs. I'm at Things Come Right. And uh, like I said, we'll be back next week with Oxenfree, hopefully The Witch, maybe a little bit Mr. Robot Talk. Maybe Victoria. Mm, is it on Netflix? No. Yeah, probably. You have to pay. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, probably okay. not. <laughs> um, so that's it. We'll see you next week. Bye.